0: To the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode eight. <laughs> Why are you uh, acting that way?
2: Because hate my life in this game
0: Uh, that's my wife amanda and the game she's talking about is papers please and right about now um she has her hands in her face covering her face and she's cradling her head and i ask her why and she just simply says after a brief pause i don't want to do this I um this is the second time she's played the game and in the recording you're hearing and it just uh it just fascinates me to no end this it's a this game is, has old style graphics and when I say old I mean like Commodore 64 you know 1987 graphics and it's so simple and on the outside it seems like it would be the most boring game in the world you're a, a person in a booth uh, at a border crossing, looking at people's papers and deciding who does and who doesn't get inside. But it's amazing. So the screen says November 28th, 1982. And what are you about to do here, honey?
2: I'm about to go to work. I decide who can get into. What is it called?
0: Arstotska. Uh, Arstotska. So you sit down and you prepare all of your materials for the day, you you walk to work and then you go into your booth and then you open up the uh, the shutters and this giant line, this endless line of uh, immigrants comes to you and they hand you your paperwork. And then it's your duty to look at that paperwork and decide who does and who does not get in to the country. What is your motivation to continue doing this job? I
2: have a family who is sick and hungry and cold. And if I don't get this right, my son could die. My son is at death's doorstep, and he could die. So
0: uh, perform your duty, and let's uh, just walk us through what's happening. Okay, but
2: we have new rules.
0: In Uh, each play session, the government gives you new guidelines that you have to follow. And if you don't follow those guidelines, your family is at stake. And maybe now you need a different kind of paperwork, or maybe something happened, uh, there was an attack somewhere, and you have to keep an eye out for a certain kind of person. The stakes just keep getting higher. Oh,
2: God. Okay.
0: Mhm. It says next, and a guy is walking in. And so, what is.
2: Okay, now I have to decide whether he is going to be allowed in.
0: Mhm. It says, What is the purpose of your trip? He says, I come to work. What's the duration of your stay? He says, Eight weeks. And so, now what are you doing?
2: Okay, now I have to verify that and make sure that he has all the proper paperwork and credentials. I have three things that I'm looking at a work pass, an entry visa. And an entry permit. Um, so I have to check to make sure his name is the same on all three documents. Uh, and what?
0: And what? What are you? What are you feeling right now?
2: I'm. am more nervous than I've ever been in real life. Um. And why? Because people have, um, blo- have been suicide bombers. Um, people have been turned away who should have been allowed in. I have let my own personal feelings toward some of these people trying to get in affect whether or not I let them in and to top it all off if I am wrong my pay is docked and I can't pay see right now I'm getting nervous because the game is playing and I'm running out of time you're talking to me. because I'm talking to you and I can't let that distraction keep me from working because my family is sick and cold and hungry <laughs> and my son is about to die uh, so I, I really need to get to okay, work. Okay, I'm okay. sorry. I love you, but I have to work. Okay.
0: Okay. The first time I saw her play this game, the first time that we ever played it, um, I watched as Amanda, my wife, a person that I've known for a very long time that I know very well, I watched her attitudes and her behaviors start to change, to be altered by the scenarios presented in this game. And I saw her start to take on the attitudes and and the uh, sort of... The behavior, the mannerisms of a person who would be faced with these tough choices every day.
2: Um, Oh, okay, I'm gonna say approved. Please don't screw me over. Here's all your stuff back. (sighs) Cause no trouble.
0: Did you hear that? Cause no trouble.
2: Oh, my baby's gonna be dead. I just know it. Don't (laughs) screw me over. Mm
0: -hmm. Call the next person. And the game doesn't stop there. Not only are the stakes raised uh, periodically by the government that you're dealing with, that you're working for, but you get placed in scenarios that there are no clear right answers. For instance, in one, a woman that you allow to pass through, she hands you a card for a brothel and says that, please don't allow a certain man, and she names him, to Get across the border. He's behind me in line because if you do, he's going to sell me and my sister into sexual slavery. So you're faced with a, 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 a decision between yes. helping your family or helping this person who you don't even know if they're, she's telling you the truth or That's not. That's right.
2: That's by right. By denying
0: someone else entry, and so you don't know if you're causing you, you're you're in a, a dilemma between what is right and what is wrong. That's right. In a game. And it feels, you're getting the similar emotions to what you would feel if
2: this was happening to you in real life. That's right. That's right. It's very upsetting.
0: Yeah, it is. And when I played it, I I felt similar things. And you can't help but feel, wow, we really have come a long way since Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. And that's that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney and I will be your host. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we discuss a different topic in the world of self-delusion and then we interview an expert on that topic and then we eat a cookie. And in this episode, we are exploring video games, specifically how video games pull back the curtain on certain kinds of self-delusion that normally remain invisible until exposed in a laboratory or in an experiment or in a study. For instance, in Papers, Please, the game that we were playing in the beginning of the show, you can't help but notice that you start to empathize with people that you normally vilify. Not all the time, but sometimes, you know, if you're getting grief from a police officer who is, uh you feel like is abusing his or her power, or you are faced with a security guard who seems to revel in your misery, or you... Um, deal with somebody like an insurance adjuster or somebody at the DMV or maybe you've even been in a situation similar to what the game portrays it's very difficult to put yourself in those people's shoes and you look at the way that they act the way they choose to do what they do as coming from their character coming from the traits that are internal to the person and you rarely take notice of how powerful the environment is how how much context matters when it comes to determining the way a person behaves. But in this game, you feel it, you feel it very strongly. In psychology, they call that uh, mistake the fundamental attribution error. The, uh, the tendency for us to um, believe that a person's actions come from their character instead of from the situation in which they find themselves. And as it was famously demonstrated in the Stanford Prison Experiment and Abu Ghraib, or as uh, you've maybe uh, experienced in your own life, uh, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic. This is what psychology teachers always say. Somebody cuts you off in traffic and you think they're a jerk, but then if you cut somebody off in traffic, you have an excuse. You know, you you're, you, you were uh, you're sick or you're, uh, you're in a terrible rush or um, and you normally would never do such a thing and you're sorry for it, but you don't think that you're a jerk, you know? And that's the fundamental attribution error, The um, whenever you make the mistake of not seeing the power, the influence of the situation over people's behavior. And I think it's amazing that a game like this can do this, and maybe it's true that only games can do this sort of thing. I know that when I played Papers, Please, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind about uh, halfway through it was thinking, oh, okay. so." the world, the government that's oppressing these people is also oppressing the people who are working for the government and in in Papers, Please it reminded me of other games out there that place you in the perspective of others just through observing your own behavior and then noticing what and why you choose what you choose. It can educate you about your own delusions like no other medium. Uh, Games like Spent in which you you can play that game for free over at playspent.com It tasks you with living as one of America's 14 million unemployed, as it says. And then, if you can get a job, you have to try to live on minimum wage for a month, so you can see how difficult it is to manage your finances on the bottom rung. There are other games out there that will give you a chance to experience a sliver of what it's like to be... A slave escaping via the Underground Railroad, or the consequences of civilian casualties after a drone strike, or to feel the crushing influence of corruption as you attempt to eradicate drug cartels in Mexico. Even in mainstream, bigger-budget games like Telltale's uh, adaptation of The Walking Dead, you are. Put into situations where you have problems that have no clear answers and you're asked to pick one of many degrees of awful terrible paths and by the end of each chapter you realize that the game is shedding light on how you would behave in real life or death situations and the things that you do will haunt you and It's true it's a game about uh, you know a fictional zombie apocalypse and the char- the characters look like cartoons but it ends up being a lens through which you see yourself in a way that without it you, you would never understand. You, you see yourself in a light and you, you can't believe what you see. But also, games are revealing something else about self-delusion. Casual games are showing us the, the nudging, motivational, obsessional, addictive side of our personalities that we may have never noticed. Um, one game in particular right now is doing that for lots and lots of people. Like, here's some, here's some clips from YouTube that might uh, shed some light on what I'm talking about.
3: Whoever it is, whatever you believe in, he, she, it, the maker of this world has got to be sick and demented knowing how badly people want it. They're putting up ten near impossible walls and obstacles at every level of
1: this journey. Dude, it's just Candy Crush.
2: Hey everyone, hope all is well. It's the government's responsibility to inform the public and deal with dangers when they happen. So what about Candy Crush? How did they let that one slip by? It's pure evil. Ask conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. It's pure evil! So here are 10 reasons why Candy Crush Saga will destroy your life.
3: Father, look at this new computer I got for Let's Play Candy Crush. Mario, don't play that game. It's not just candy. It's evil. Evil candy that's
1: stupid i'm playing it oh my god oh this is a good one hold up bitch i might actually win this level
0: so let me just tell y'all about this horrible game candy crush and why it can suck two deer dicks hey so yeah that's candy crush saga that all of these youtubers are warning you about it's a game it's a very simple game it's kind of like bejeweled you just match little uh little icons on there. It's very pleasant. Um, here's, you know, here's what it sounds like. You just match some fruit together in little groups and they disappear and you get some points and you level up and it has a lot of levels. It has like 400 levels, but there's a very special addictive quality to it that it shares with uh, similar casual games that is causing some people to say, man, this thing is evil. It sucks your time and it asks for money, and um, I think what you see here is a casual audience being introduced to some of the uh, some of the special psychological tricks that have been uncovered or at least exploited by um, other popular super addictive games like World of Warcraft or League of Legends. Things that have made headlines in the past, but that have been considered in the realm of gamers, hardcore gamers, people who play Call of Duty, you know, people who live the lifestyle of gaming, not not people like me who just play this game on the subway or uh, while I'm watching television or while I'm on an airplane, the places where people play casual games. So I think it's a really interesting thing to explore, the idea of what do games tell us about ourselves and how do these behaviors that Games are so great at, at eliciting and revealing how do we see those those behaviors manifested outside of games. To help us understand this, our guest today is psychologist Jamie Madigan. He has a PhD in psychology and he is an expert on the psychology of video games. He has a great blog called psychologyofgames.com where he explores uh, different topics in psychology and he then shows how those Topics either are exploited or demonstrated in popular video games that both casual audiences and hardcore audiences are probably playing right now. Um, he's an industrial psychologist and he has written for several different publications that talk about both gaming and psychology. And he's just great. He's fantastic. You're going to love
1: this interview.
0: And uh,
1: let's let's just get. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/yanss today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com/yanss. So you want to make better decisions, and you have a business. You have a business, and you want to make better decisions.
0: Jamie, I love games, um, and I wanted to talk to you because uh, you're a, what I would consider, you know, a specialist and expert, uh, someone with a great deal of <laughs> knowledge in the world of psychology and also in video games. And um, and you write about a lot of things. You write about concern motivation because it's really part of uh, good game design is motivating the player to do all sorts of different things. Um, and to seek out rewards, intangible rewards. One of the most um, fascinating things you write about is uh, the Ziegarnik effect. Is that how I'm pronouncing it correctly?
3: Pretty close. That's how I say it. So we'll be consistent at least. Okay. Uh,
0: Tell us what that is. How does that work?
3: So this is uh, actually a a pretty long-lived effect um, that was uh, discovered first back in the 1920s by uh, Bluma Ziegarnik, who was – a psychologist, a German psychologist – or not German, a um, Russian psychologist who one day was sitting in a restaurant and noticed that the waiters who were bringing orders out could uh, easily remember which orders went to which tables without you know, noting anything down or chanting the orders under their breath or using any sort of mnemonics or, or any tricks. And this apparently interested her and she went back uh, into her lab and conducted some experiments and found out that indeed – Uh, If you interrupt somebody during the middle of a task, they tend to remember that task better. So this is what was happening with the waiters was that the orders had not been delivered yet. So that that task or that quest in video game parlance had Mm -hmm. not been completed yet. And so it was easier for the waiters to remember and and it was easier for the subjects in – her studies to recall the details surrounding tasks that they had been interrupted on or hadn't had a chance to complete. Um, they could tell her all kinds of things about what they had done, but as soon as another group uh, in a different experimental condition had completed the task, then that information sort of went out the window, it wasn't needed anymore, and uh, and they forgot about it. So this was something that, uh, you know, and this is how generally a lot of the articles I end up writing Follow this same sort of pattern where I read about you know something in in the larger world of psychology and think, huh? Well, that sort of explains these things that happen in video games. So that explains why people do and think the way that they do when they're playing video games. And so the the big example of the the Zgarnik effect in video games is the quest log. So mm-hmm. if you've ever played like a big meaty role playing game like Skyrim, and uh, you know you bring up your quest log once you're a few hours into the game you know we're probably all familiar with the site of of tons and tons of side quests and even main quests and that are stacked up and Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times those are gated so that you will complete all the quests in one area before moving on to the other and what i find in my own play experience is that i'm very reluctant to move on with the main part of the game before i've cleaned up my quest log and I you know those things stick in my mind and they're easier for me to remember and recall um, that I you know I need okay I need eight more gore tusk livers or I need to go kill these trolls or I need to go deliver this letter to so-and-so over here and I will waste an amazing amount of time doing these little activities that aren't even necessarily that much fun and may not even give you any rewards within the game but it releases that mental tension. It, you know, you feel good about seeing that quest uh, checked off. Uh, and, you know, I think the same thing happens with uh, to-do lists, you know, and, and productivity tools that allow us to, you know, form our own quest logs. The, the document that I use to keep track of my daily uh, to-do items is called questlog.txt. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I note all those things down there, and I've kind of hijacked that effect uh, to good use. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, it, it definitely shows up in video games of all of all kinds. And
0: I mean, I I plainly remember in Fallout Three there was um there was this quest where I I had to kill someone and I was I was not go I didn't want to do it because I felt like it was immoral and I didn't <coughs> I didn't want to hurt this guy. And uh, when I finished the game, there were, that was the only quest that was left in my list because I made sure I went through and did everything else. If I started it, I had to finish it, which is sort of the the main the uh, point of the Zignarik effect, right? So, uh,
3: so this person had to die so that you could relieve this well, mental tension, let no, me guess.
0: No, I still have – it still bothers me I right now. <laughs> like I, I, I refuse to do it because this moral center says don't. But this uh, this effect is still nagging at me in this virtual world that I've uh, you know promised I will never go back and mess with. Yeah. Um, and you see that a lot in sandbox games too, where you uh, mm. they put little push pins all over the map, and here's the thing you could do. Here's the thing you could do. and you know that if you if you happen to start one of those things, you've got to finish it.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, just recently playing Saints Row 4, um, which just came out recently, and it's a big open world uh, game. And the series kind of started off as a parody of Grand Theft Auto, so it's that type of big urban environment. Mm-hmm. And one of the really clever things that they did in this version of the game, Saints Row 4, is that they've sort of bundled up all of these little side activities like doing races or challenges or or winning at Fight Club and they instead of just putting those on the map and you could walk up to the icon and do it they actually bundled them up under different quests that the non-player characters would give you and i thought that was a really clever way of ex- of of getting people to play more of the game when they might think like nah the races aren't very much fun i'm not going to do that but if it means checking something off right. on that quest log okay. uh sure i'm going to i'm going to go at least until i get a bronze medal in this race
0: and how much of that do you think is um the designer of the game understanding this effect and putting it to good use or it just is yeah. a happy accident, which what do you how much of it do you think is planned ahead of time?
3: that's that's a good question. I think it varies a lot from from designer to designer. Um, you know when I started doing the blog psychology of games, one of the the first groups of people that really started reading this stuff and commenting and 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 so forth were game designers and mm-hmm. game developers. Mm-hmm. And those are pretty smart people and they tend to pay attention to what works and they tend to repeat what works. Right. So I don't know if they know that this is called the Zagarnik effect or the endowed progress effect. And they don't necessarily know about goal-oriented behavior and and, and how to manipulate that. But they do know that putting that quest logs work mm-hmm. and that and that it's enjoyable to check things off and and progress through a game and move from uh, having Uh, you know, uh, something that you were oriented towards and that you want to do and then actually doing it. Mm -hmm. So I think some of them may get it and some of them may have researched it and other ones just sort of intuitively grasp the concept. Mm -hmm.
0: And whenever um, you talk about the um, Zagarnik effect in games, what are some other ways that you've uh, seen this uh, outside of gaming and just uh, at the day-to-day life of a person who maybe doesn't play games?
3: Oh, you, you see it all over. Um, you know, whenever you sign up for a new social networking site or, or even an old one, um, like if, if you've ever noticed, I don't know if you use LinkedIn or, you know, if any oh, of your yeah. li- listeners oh, yeah. or readers do. but Spammed in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it, I, I constantly get these uh, notifications that say so-and-so who you worked with 12 years ago uh, recommended you or endorsed you uh, on a particular skill. And you'll go in there and look and it'll say, like, they said you really know how to do – uh, human resources staffing you know for example in my in my world and you say well that's nice and the reason that you tend to get those randomly is that uh, LinkedIn actually has like a little progress bar for your mm-hmm. profile and you can fill in that progress bar by doing things like updating your profile and recommending someone or, or uh, you know linking with some people and, and doing these little activities related to the site so that's a way that they get you drawn in and more involved and get more of your data
0: and and there's reciprocity baked into that too mm-hmm. yeah um it's like uh, you, you know uh and just if i play about three more games of call of duty i will level up to the next <laughs> level so yeah. so it's worth my time to get in there that's really interesting that there's a gamification in there uh in just the linkedin process mm-hmm. um, so what is endowed progress you mentioned earlier
3: so DAD Progress is, is, uh, comes out of one of my, my favorite studies that I've read about in, in a while. Uh, a couple of guys, Nunez and Drez, in a 2006 uh, article in the Journal of Consumer Research – And so, you know, you're probably familiar with like these little customer loyalty cards where you may go to a Subway sandwich shop and they'll give you a card and it says, you know, buy six sandwiches and then get a free, a free one. And each time you buy a sandwich, the person behind the counter takes a little punch card out and and punches a hole in your card. And you keep coming back and you get more punches until you get your free sandwich. So what these guys did is they went out to a car wash and they – Um, had two groups of people, uh, at least two. I think they had a a control condition as well. But in one group of people, they gave them a card that said, you can earn a free car wash if you get 10 punches. But the person behind the counter said, i tell you what, special today, I'm going to give you two free starter punches. So they needed to buy 10, but they gave them two for free to get them started. And the other experimental group, they got a card that just said, Bring this back, get car washes, and get eight punches, and you'll get a free car wash. Uh So you notice that both groups needed how many
0: punches? Right. So they both need eight, but one already has – one seems like they need ten and have two already marked off, right? Right. So they both
3: need eight. One of them is is sort of given a head start, given a bump. And uh, what they found was that people who needed – got the card that needed ten, but they got started with two, came back more frequently – They waited less time between car washes. And uh, so, in other words, the customer loyalty program worked really well. Okay, yeah. So, again, something I read and said, huh, well, that sort of applies to the way that a lot of game uh, quests and uh, other game systems are developed. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times in a role-playing game or really any kind of game, you may uh, get a quest or get an activity that says, okay, I need you to go out and kill ten rats. And maybe this was because you had already killed two rats, and so you've kind of gotten on your way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's where you see, you know, this effect coming up. And people who are who feel like they have been started along this path to completing the quest will be more motivated uh, to complete it than are people who who don't. So giving people a little something to get them started or maybe something extremely easy, maybe something you would have done in the course of completing the tutorial for the game anyway, to say, Hey, in the course of learning combat, you know, you killed two rats, go kill 10 more and we'll give you a plus one sword
0: yeah, or whatever. And I've seen that where you will, um, you will, especially in a, in a a more open world game where there's so many things you can do. You will, um, if you happened, you know, you have no idea that this is even a system in place and it, like, mm-hmm. like you said, you'll you'll happen to say, um, you know, you'll spot two pigeons or whatever, and then it, it says right. you found two of fifty pigeons. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that I'm on a course here. Okay.
3: Yep. Yeah, you just stumble upon the pigeon, and it says one pigeon found. You're like, oh, awesome, <laughs> one pigeon found. Yay me! And then it says you need to find nine hundred more. <laughs> uh, you say, okay, well, let's go. Right. Let's, let's do this.
0: Um, you know, I I um I'm happy that like so many people are discovering uh, gaming in the form of casual games. Um, I love, uh, plants versus zombies and, and my wife, she loves plants versus zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, have you played the second one, the new I, one? I have played the second one. I actually, um, I read a review on wired that said, yes, I know it's terrible that you have to, uh, that has the whole pay to win system installed into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's free to play, but you can uh, pay to just complete levels and things. um, and their suggestion was to enter into a contract with yourself. And when you reach the end of the first board, go ahead and um, pay to reach the second board. And then don't pay for anything else. Pretend like the game costs $6. Oh. Uh, and that and that way you won't have to uh, grind to get to the next level. And it's I was just so intrigued at how... Uh, I, ha- I have several friends who are like, I hate that, I will never play it. But then I came up with a way to uh, enter into some sort of weird contract with myself to uh, allow myself to love the game.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, That's pretty clever. That That sounds like good advice to me.
0: I think it is good advice. It was in a Wired article. I can't take credit for that, of course. It was somebody else came up with that, it was a really yeah. good idea. Um, what is the, the psychology behind these uh, free-to-play games?
3: Uh, probably, I mean, a whole lot of stuff. Um and it depends on on which free to play game you're talking well, about. For, well, for, I haven't played Plants vs. Zombies, but I actually understand that they're relatively benign relative mm-hmm. to something like Candy Crush Saga.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Candy Crush because um, a lot of people I know who would never play, uh, you know, Skyrim or would never play, um, you know, Bioshock Infinite or something like that. They. They they love Candy Crush Saga, but they sort of have a love-hate relationship with it. What is uh, What are some of the techniques that the developers of Candy Crush are using to keep people playing and playing and playing?
3: Yeah, so I, I kind of dipped my toe into Candy Crush in the name of science uh, yeah. as well, because I'm the person who's much more likely to pay Skyrim uh, mm-hmm. than Candy Crush. But it, it it's the most popular game on Facebook and iOS. It's ridiculously popular, and a lot of people on my Facebook friends list play it. And none of that that popularity happens by accident. And mm-hmm. if you kind of if you kind of look at it, they do use a number of psychological tricks um, and psychological levers to, to motivate and move people, even if they don't realize you know that they're being uh, affected in this way. Um, you know, the first one that I always think of and, and that occurred to me immediately when I started playing Candy Crush is that the games are designed to be habits first and games second, actually. So like in Candy Crush and and Farmville is kind of this way too. You can only play so much, especially once you get up towards the more difficult boards uh, before you run out of lives for the day. And so you get like five lives and then once those are used up, then you have to wait or pay or get a friend to help you by by sending you some lives and a lot of what a lot of people d- end up doing is is waiting you know so you say okay I'm done for today and so they may have only played for 10 15 30 minutes you know at a time um, and so what, what I think a lot of people end up doing is that they build playing the game into their habits or into the routines of the day and so if you look at like the psychology mm. of habits and and what makes people form habits and how to break them That, you know, building activities like playing Candy Crush Saga into routines or building them into, you know, a sort of standardized set of activities that you go through every day uh, forms habits. So if you play Candy Crush over your morning coffee every morning or on your lunch break uh, or when you're getting ready for bed, you're much more likely to form, you know, a habit and play more than you intended. Yeah so that that's definitely one way that they do it. They, you know they're designed to do that instead of just letting you play until you're sick of it and then and set it down forever
0: and you know the um, it amazes me that, that how how incredibly powerful um, a game like that or a game like World of Warcraft or farmville can um, can be at getting people to keep playing the game even past the point where maybe they're not enjoying the game exactly, but they feel like it's, um, it's almost their, uh, it's like their duty. It's their, it's a, um, it's an obligation that they will, they will feel bad if they don't complete certain things. Right. And um, it's amazing to me that um, something that should be entertaining can sometimes be uh, switched to be, you know, they're poking um, a very specific part of your behavior. But I would, you know, I don't want anybody listening to this to think that, um, there's any reason to, I, I, I don't think, I don't see this any different than say, uh, you know, Breaking Bad has incredible cliffhangers right before the credits mm. and, uh, that's tweaking, uh, you know, a psychological effect to get you to watch the next episode or to sit mm-hmm. through commercials or whatever. So it's only natural that games would discover some things that are unique to their language, I guess. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to rant for a minute there, but. No,
3: that's fine. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so tell me a little bit about loot. I love games that have loot. I'm a, I love Borderlands. I finished Borderlands 2 in 48 hours. Oh my
3: gosh, that's uh, a big game.
0: Uh, it was a big game, and I, I had obligations. I was writing um, you know, a book, and, the, so, and I was like, but I have to play Borderlands 2. Yeah. And I shot through it.
3: Um, what class did you play?
0: Uh I always start out doing soldier or whatever is the soldier yeah. class of a game. I like the average class and then I'll mm-hmm. usually move on to whatever is the mage whenever I play it through it again. Um so that's what I did in the, in, the, in Borderlands yeah. 2. Um so loot is like the best thing. They almost made the uh, Borderlands 2 is a game that is basically built around the idea of loot and loot is something that has been part of RPGs forever. What is it about loot that is so compelling?
3: It's uh it is it is compelling, and a game like Borderlands does such a good job of incorporating loot into the experience. You know, you open up a chest, and it you don't just open up a chest; like stuff literally explodes, you know, out of it. And you got different colors, and it's all visually stimulating and really cool. And you're really, really hoping to see something purple pop out of there, uh, you know, instead of white or green, because you know, loot is color coded, where mm-hmm. purple is better than green, and in a lot of ways it's like gambling and it relies on a lot of the same sort of mental processes and, and things that gambling does. Uh, You know, we're, our brains are very concerned about patterns. So, you know, whenever we see something good in the environment, we've evolved to want to know like, why did that happen and how can I make it happen again? So, you know, if I, if I happen to find a of berries or, or, or catch a fish, you know, in a particular stream, a bunch of fish, you know, it's ingrained in us to, to be able to figure out, you know, what happened, what did that, and how do I make it happen again? Um, because what we're attuned to are, are discrepancies between what we predict will happen and what actually happens. And when you are pulling a, on a slot machine or opening a crate uh, in Borderlands or a treasure chest in Borderlands, uh, it, it, it's very similar. It's very much the same thing where your brain is trying to figure out what's what's going to happen. And, you know, last time you did that, you got a purple. So, you know, if if it's this kind of chest, if it looks like this, or maybe if I do a little dance before opening it or form some sort of ritual or, you know, maybe if I let my co-op player open it first, some you know, we'll get something better out of it. And, you know, those release you – know, I don't want to get too much into like the neuroscience of it because – I know I'll screw something up. Sure, I'm not sure, sure. I'm not particularly an expert in that, but you know your your dopamine receptors are are lighting up whenever something like that happens and mm-hmm. it's a great feeling. You know, you get that bliss burst whenever something good happens. And so when you see another unopened chest, you're thinking, "Hey, that's another opportunity to feel good and get something mm-hmm. uh, out of it."
0: And it's the anticipation the anticipation is the really the, the powerful mm-hmm. part of that, right?
3: Yeah, so it's not so much that you're getting loot drops that you enjoy. It's that you're really hooked on the anticipation and the expectation.
0: I, um, and you know, what's great about borderlands is it really incorporates like everything that developers have learned when it comes to the RPG mixed in with the shooting. You know, you've got progress bars and you've got loot drops and you've got mm-hmm. quests and you've got uh customization, of your character and you can play with other people and those rest. Recipro- I mean, there's every single trick that you can pull out of that bag is in that game. Um, and for, even for somebody like myself, you know, I'm just a lay person that likes psychology. And for someone like yourself, who is much uh, more well-versed in it, you still love these games mm-hmm. um, when it's done well. Um, and when a company like Valve or Rockstar or Naughty Dog or um, Irrational, when, when, when they pull it off well, we don't mind seeing these tricks used um, but then the company, and uh, this is just my personal opinion, who makes a game like Farm Bill or Candy yeah. Crush, um, those games will eventually be reviled after a couple of years. What If you were a consultant for a company like um, Valve or, or Naughty Dog, what would you say, uh, what would you recommend they do to stay on the, uh, the, the side of light <laughs> <laughs> and to not fall over into the side of darkness
3: the sight of darkness and fat wads of cash and piles of money, <laughs> Scrooge McDuck style. Right. Right. Um, well, and that's whole whole separate argument over over whether or not that business model is sustainable. Um, but to answer your question, I think it has a lot to do with just how exploitative it feels and sort of how upfront you are about it. Um, Valve is a pretty good example. Um, you know, Team Fortress Two is is my go to sort of. I got. 20 minutes to kill want to play a little bit of mindless shooter uh, type action and it's now a free to play game which means that you can download it for free and play it and then they make money off of that by uh having people buy cosmetic items so you can buy hats and new weapons and sort of outfits and things to accessorize your your little dude and they are they're, they're pretty shrewd they do you know they have a really knowledgeable economist working full time on them on staff to sort of run their virtual economy, and they have a psychologist working there as well um, that that is doing this sort of stuff. But they're really on the level about it. You know, you go into the store and, and things cost dollars instead of some, and instead of diamonds or Smurf berries or you know the the sort of uh, funny money or fake money that you see in a lot of uh, in app purchases. Um, you know they're they're upfront about how often loot drops and the nature of it, and then they give you tools to either use this stuff or sell it on a marketplace where you can uh, then put money into like your your Steam, which is their digital distribution system, uh, where you can use that money to either buy more cosmetic stuff for your Team Fortress Two or your Dota characters, or you can actually buy games, real video games, with that money. So. I, th- I think it's a matter, and this is what I would advise, is, is being upfront about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think free-to-play models are here to stay and because they work and they offer an alternative that a lot of people find appealing. And I think that it's going to be a, a cultural generational thing when, you know, people who are growing up with these types of business models now, um, they're they seem mostly fine with them and they're going to – grow up to be people who have kids who are fine with them and dinosaurs like you and I may, may die off. <laughs> uh, eventually, you know, or just give me my $60 box and I, that's, I just want to play that and never give you another dime. Right. Um, that's changing. I think there'll be both. Uh, but you know, you're not, you're not going to get away from it. It's, it's here to stay.
0: Yeah. So I guess just respect your, you know, respect the, the gamer to, they're smart people. They'll figure this stuff yeah.
3: out. Yeah. Yeah, gamers tend to be smart and they they tend to see what's going on and they tend to read websites like psychologyofgames.com <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know they 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 see this sort of stuff but that's just the thing even if you do understand it you can still get caught up in it.
0: Yeah. Um before uh we we uh part there was a there's something that you wrote about that i had never heard of before that is um seems like something new in games, and I I love it. It's so weird. It's a benign uh, versus malicious envy.
3: Oh, yeah. Could you sort of uh, unpack that? So this was some research that I read about when I was looking into how cosmetic items affect people. So, you know, I was just mentioning that uh, you could buy a new skin or a new weapon or a new hat. And then games, massively multiplayer games, this factors in a whole lot because you can go on quests and, and buy stuff either in the game or earn it in the game that looks really cool. And sort of, you know, if you're the dude with the big humongous shoulder plates and the giant flaming helmet and the you know the broadsword the, the size of a barn, uh, then, you know, that you look pretty badass and people – uh, look at that, and they'll say, you know, that's something that I want. That's, you know, I, I'm I'm envious of that. And benign envy is where you look at something that somebody says, and you say, I want that, but. I recognize that that person earned it. So, you know, you look and they played 400 hours of this game and they're in the top tier guild and maybe they have no life and I, I don't really want to play, you know, be obsessed with the game to the extent that they are. But yeah, all right, that's cool. They got it. You know, carry on. Good job, man. Mm-hmm. Um, but malicious envy is where you look at somebody and you see, Okay, they have something cool, but you don't feel like that they deserved it. Maybe they bought it off eBay or maybe they have you know – they're living in a fraternity house where uh, people take turns playing the game. And so they got like all the unlocks in Call of Duty and, and have all of these upgraded items and weapons. Um, you know, because they're using a shared account and oh, basically yeah. playing the game 24 hours a day or, you know, they ha- they have like a gamer score on Xbox of some ridiculous number or 200,000 or whatever it is. And you instead of sort of wanting to build yourself up to get what that person has, which is what happens with benign envy, you want to tear that person down. So you may <laughs> say that weapon is nerfed or you need to fix this exploit or, yeah. you know, You need to put limits on this sort of stuff, and there need to be rules about sharing accounts between people. And so people will be much more motivated to try to, you know, in either case, they're motivated to reduce the discrepancy between the target person and themselves. They want what that person has, but they go about it in very different ways. And it has big impacts on on their attitude towards the game and how much they enjoy the game.
0: And and are some designers incorporating. Um, malicious envy into game design.
3: I don't know if they're actually incorporating malicious envy. I, I think they'd be more likely to try to incorporate benign envy by increasing transparency around what it is that you need to do mm-hmm. to get to get these items, these cosmetic or, or these, you know, very powerful weapons or cool mounts or strongholds or or even just the little badge next to your name and matchmaking and on the leaderboards. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're much more likely to do that to build either resources into the game or uh, rely on a player community to develop you know anything from a from a wiki uh, to an official website that sort of explains how everything works
0: right see I would like to see um like whenever I find somebody boosting in um, call of duty and if for mm-hmm. anyone who's not familiar with that what what they do is a person will um Join you know in a Call of Duty match, it's your it's your team versus another team, trying to achieve some sort of goal, and what boosters will do is that one person will get on the opposing side and their friend will get on the other side, and they will pick a place on the map where nobody would suspect them to go, and they'll go over there and agree to let one guy get killed over and over again so that he can. Um, Rank up and be able to unleash whatever kill streaks. Kill streaks, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, because after so many kills, you're able to do something impressive in the game, and then that sort of like
3: starts, nuke the entire map. Right. For example,
0: <laughs> so that starts that starts a ball rolling where that person gets more and more powerful, and they eventually are unstoppable. Um, whenever I find people doing that in a Call of Duty game, that's it for the rest of the night. That's all I care about is finding those people and destroying them, and I will chase them from yeah from game to, you know, they'll leave that game and go into another match. And I'll say, well, I'm, I'm right behind you. Then I'll, follow them. <laughs> right. I would love to see, um, and it is, maybe this is impractical, but I would love to see, um, uh, Treyarch or whoever is producing the next call of duty game to, um, incorporate, like reward me for that activity. <clears I> mean, <throat> um, and give me some sort of a special, um, some sort of, something that I can show to other players that I'm like, uh, the kind of person who will find those people and kill them. Or, you, know you know what I'm saying?
3: Yeah, I do. And, and one thing that, me- that makes me think of is the honor system in league of legends. So if you're not familiar with it, league of legends is, is a MOBA, which is an acronym for massively online battle arena. Mm-hmm. So it, it's team based. You got two teams of people, you know, real human beings connected to the internet facing off against each other. Um, incredibly competitive and that scene sort of had a reputation for being very nasty. So, and, and part of the reason is that matches take a really long time. So you're investing a lot of time. And if you've got some scrub who is just screwing things up or somebody who's new to the game or somebody who's intentionally messing things up just to somehow derive joy out of that, um, you know, people will tear into them and people will be very unfriendly. So, uh, Riot Games, who makes League of Legends, uh, instituted what they call an honor system, which is basically a, f- a way for players to give each other kudos and offer positive reinforcement hmm. for good behaviors. So, and if you were to do something like. What you were talking about—if you know—if you were to pursue griefers across matches, or or report them, or uh, you know, or or talk them out of doing what they're doing, you know, maybe maybe even take some radical, uh, you know, crazy step like reasoned explanation uh, to get things done, then other players would be able to reward you with these honor points, and then those honor points are really only good for cosmetic things at least i think at the moment you know and you've got an honor rank and you get little icons next to your name and people can see that yeah you're a pretty classy guy uh, and and you're honorable so there there are people experimenting with those types of systems that's great
0: and you know and to circle back around you know you know games do draw back the curtain on a lot of other behaviors and you know some of that, that stuff yeah it's cosmetic but so much of you know normal real life meat space life, the things you achieve are purely cosmetic, you know? So yeah. it's all about what, you know, do you value and what is, uh, you think is worth your time and, um, what are you, who are you trying to display that to and everything? Yeah. Um, um look, I can talk to you forever on this stuff. Cause obviously <laughs> our interests intersect here. Uh, but I, I I'm going to uh, let you go. Tell me, uh, tell, tell people who are interested in what you're working on and what you're going to be working on next, how they can find you.
3: Sure. Uh so the best way to find me is uh I don't know if I mentioned this before, but www.psychologyofgames.com that's the website that houses uh most of my writing and uh that's a website that I just kind of started as a lark back in 2009. It's it's grown into this weird rolling hobby, uh you know, where I research and write about this stuff. Uh, I also write occasionally for uh, psychologytoday.com, gamasutra.com. Um, but psychologygames.com. I'll point you to all to that and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Jamie Madigan, J A M I E M A D I G A N. And, uh, I tweet about, uh, stuff that I run across that's relevant to psychology and or video games. Awesome.
0: And, um, are you working on some sort of big project in the future? <laughs> I-
3: I, I am. So I am uh, I'm hoping to write a book about the psychology of video games and how uh, actually a lot of the things that we've just been discussing, how, you know, what we can learn from psychology and video games that informs our behaviors outside of games you know in quote unquote meat space or or the real world right and uh, i've got a a proposal and i I secured a literary agent and she's uh helping me shop that around to publishers so hopefully i'll you know have something to show and and we'll have a book deal someday soon Uh,
0: i hope so man i wish you all the best of luck and thank you appreciate it thank you so much for coming on thank you it was fun I am proud to announce that You Are Not So Smart's podcast is now part of the Boing Boing podcast family, and part of being in that family is being neighbors with great podcasts like Apps for Kids, which is a podcast that um, Mark Fraunfelder and his 10-year-old daughter Jane uh, do, and it's just so cool, and it really uh, kind of goes with today's podcast because their most recent uh, episode, they talk about Plants vs. Zombies 2. And the podcast is about cool smartphone apps for kids and parents. And if you want to find out the, uh, the best stuff out there that you can share with your children, that's, uh, cool and safe and interesting. I highly recommend this podcast. That's apps for kids. And now it's time for cookies. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send in your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book or my new book, You Are Now Last Dumb. You can pick either one and I will sign that and send it your way. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else that I've talked about, links to everything at you are not so smart.com, as well as uh, I send the recipe over to the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. So this week's winner is Violet Sinakar. And Violet, um, I'm assuming it's a she. Uh, Violet, uh, she sent in a recipe for something called white chocolate oatmeal cookies, an unassuming name. But this cookie that I hold in my left hand as my right hand trembles in uh, uh, anticipation of ecstasy, it is a just this beautiful sort of uh, beige cookie with like stuff sticking out in every direction, like a katamari damacy ball. Oh, keeping it in the theme. Um, okay, so this thing is like uh, it smells amazing already. Like I'm not even in the room where these cookies were baked, but I can smell it. Oh, and um, I want you to know that two sticks of butter went into the, uh, the batter. This has the, there was a cup, a cup of butter. So this thing is, m- I think mostly butter. I, I'm going to assume that each cookie is 30% butter. So obviously it's going to taste fantastic. It's butter with white chocolate chips in it, uh, with in, in a, uh, a matrix of oatmeal to hold it together. Uh, so I'm going to taste this cookie. I'm going to get away from the microphone. So you won't hear the disgusting sounds of my, uh, uh, pre-digestion. So hold on one second. Moving away from the microphone. Here we go. ho, ho!
1: Oh, oh, oh. oh, boy.
0: That is fantastic violet dinner oh my god what have you done that cookie uh, my life now exists before that cookie and after that cookie you guys have got to make this cookie I, I am gonna make sure you you know make sure you check out the um, the recipe on the uh, the show description page at you are not so smart.com because you've got to put this in your life. This has to be part of you wow okay that's good stuff i don't know what else to say um the description before was pretty accurate i mean what else could you want it's it's white chocolate oatmeal and there's also some nuts in there some um some uh um walnut pieces and it's taking everything in, in uh, right now to just keep talking to you and not devour this oh it's great i highly recommend it check it out um and let's talk about some interesting news in psychology this came out as a news release from the University of British Columbia. You can find it at news.ubc.ca under the headline "Poverty Impairs Cognitive Function." And this what that's what these uh, researchers are um, are discovering. What this evidence is leaning, having them uh, lean toward, is the idea that, um, as they put it, there's a certain amount of mental bandwidth that we can apply to any problem. And a person who is experiencing the effects of poverty in their lives has less of that bandwidth to spend on other things like education or um, like learning a a new job skill or just simply managing their time. And uh, as they say in the article, other steps that could help break out of the cycles of poverty Specifically, and I'm reading directly from the article right now, uh, they say that in one set of experiments, the researchers found that pressing financial concerns had an immediate negative impact on the ability of low-income individuals to perform on common cognitive and logic tasks. And the uh, release goes on to say that, on average, a person preoccupied with money problems exhibited a drop in cognitive function similar to a 13-point dip in IQ or the loss of an entire night's sleep. And uh, this next paragraph, this is also still reading from this release. In another series of field experiments, the researchers found that farmers showed diminished cognitive performance before getting paid for their harvest compared to after when they had greater wealth. These differences in cognitive functioning could not be explained by differences in nutrition, physical exertion, time availability, or stress. According to the study, the mental strain of poverty differs from stress, which can actually enhance a person's functioning in certain situations. And that's uh, all that comes directly from the article Poverty Impairs Cognitive Function over at the uh, University of British Columbia. And it's it's interesting because this is um, there's, this is one of those privileges that people who don't have to worry about this kind of stuff don't realize that they have, and that gives them some sort of edge. So if you have just at least enough money to go out and eat whenever you feel like it, um, to buy tickets to see a movie, whenever you feel like it, if you don't have to manage your money around, um, basic necessities and then the very basic, uh, niceties of life, you don't realize how, how freeing that is on your ability to pick up other skills and to, um, to devote your attention to other things that maybe give you even more of an advantage in the future. Um, according to this research, there's a very specific kind of, um, of uh, hindering of, a, of that a, a specific kind of governing on the uh, ability for the brain to function that comes specifically from wor- worrying about money. Money itself. Worrying about uh, how you're going to uh, pay for things, how you're going to earn that money, what are you going to do about losing that money. Thinking about bills and thinking about your financial well-being is a completely different kind of cognitive stress, a cognitive uh, load from um, other types of stress. It's an amazing bit of research. Check out the, uh, the article. And uh, I'm looking forward to see what happens in the future as far as like how this adds to the realm of understanding decision-making and understanding um, judgment and how um, how there are many more um, individual factors that affect that than, than maybe we, we understand at this moment. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today over at youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find out about both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb. And you can also buy merchandise in the form of T-shirts and mugs over there as well. Thank you to Jamie Madigan for being our guest this uh, episode and you can check out all of his stuff over at psychologyofgames.com and as I mentioned before, this podcast is now part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts and you should really check out the other stuff they've got. Check out boingboing.net for more fantastic podcasts.